Ah, so good, Tommy. So good. So I've been listening to that song all weekend, and you know, I, I don't know what it means. I'm old, all right? But, uh, but it's awesome, Tommy, whatever that song's about. Following your feet. That's all that you have to remember, okay? Remember, follow your feet. That's what we're going to talk about later today, all right? It's hot outside. Everybody thankful to God for creating air conditioning, yes? Awesome. Also, it's Father's Day, all right? And so, you know, the church I grew up in, you know, my dad's church, um, so we used to have like the oldest father stand up and he just like could barely do, uh, you know, and then, uh, and then we got to the youngest father and it's like a 13-year-old kid with a beard and it got awkward after that, you know. But so, <laughs> somebody going, that's oh, me. Anyway, but anyway, if you're a father, a grandfather, whatever, you just stand up so we can just give it up for our dads, all right? Awesome, 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 awesome. Yay. So good. Man, you did good. You did good, all right? So anyway, we make a big deal on Mother's Day, but I, you know, I'm not a mother, so I'm a father and a grandfather. Have I mentioned that? Anyway, uh, shut up now. Hey, let's pray. We'll pray. We're going to thank God for two things, air conditioning and fathers, all right? So pray for whichever one you like the best, all right? So God, we love you so much. We love you for bringing us in here into this nice air-conditioned building. Um, but we're just thankful that you take such good care of us. And God, we thank you for some of the men that you put in our lives, fathers, grandfathers, uncles, just uh, a, a, a really good man that maybe you put into our life. Uh, we thank you for our dads. Uh, we thank you for our sons. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for my dad who's in heaven right now. And just, I'm just thinking about him this weekend. So, God, just whatever, uh, whatever it takes to take care of us and take care of uh, the men in this room, God, it's a big responsibility in a, in a really screwed up world to be a man today, to be a father, to be a grandfather. And we need your help desperately. And that's why a lot of us came in here. So men or women, God, just teach us one good thing about your son Jesus so that we can walk out of here and become more and more the kind of men and women that you created us to be. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, hey, today we're going to wrap up a series we've been in for the, la like the last two months, working our way through what's probably the, the most famous sermon in the whole Bible, definitely the, the most well-known, most quoted uh, message from Jesus. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in it for like, like 10 weeks here, but, but over the last two months, many of us have thought about what Jesus said and thought about different parts of our life differently than we ever have before, all right, which is a good thing. Because as, as you read through all the, all the teachings of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those, those biographies of, of Jesus, all right, every time Jesus like started a new talk or something like that, he almost always started with the same word, and it was one simple word, goes repent, all right, you go repent, all right, which we, we, as we studied, it means this, rethink how you think about everything. So he's about to kind of lay some big stuff on us, and so he just says, hey, before I even go any further, first thing is you're going to you're gonna have to think about stuff different. If this is going to make sense, rethink everything in your life. Rethink God. Or think, rethink the universe. Rethink how you see other people. Rethink religion. Rethink everything you know about relationships, about sex, about enemies, about money. Rethink how you think about everything. And, and the answer would be, why would we do that, Jesus? And he said, because God's right here. God is near. He's not in some castle, Disney castle, on the other side of outer space. God is near. The full presence of, of God, Jesus called it the kingdom of the heavens, is here and it's available to anybody who's willing to take their life and put it inside of God's kingdom and go, I want to live my life interactively with you. All right, again, it's not about someday. It's live every moment of this life interactively with Jesus. And then after your funeral, you'll keep on going. But we're talking about this life. The Sermon on the Mount is about this life. Becoming more and more the kind of people that Jesus was and doing more and more of the kinds of things that Jesus did. Let's go back, you know, eight, eight or nine weeks ago. Jesus opened his whole talk with these things called the Beatitudes. And several thousand of us tried, tried to memorize that. But it's basically this. You, your life can be good. You can know that you're good with God regardless of your circumstances. Regardless of your past mistakes or the things you're going to do good or bad in the future, you can have a blessed life. But, but the Sermon on the Mount is not about what a person has to do 
to, to, to change or what a person has to do to, to, to be saved or, or to have their sins forgiven or to be a good Christian or, or, or to, to be with God. No, no, no. See, all through the Bible, it's very, very clear, and it says it 50 different ways, but it goes down to this. We are saved, our sins are forgiven, by grace through faith in Jesus and not by what we do to earn our way into God's kingdom. All right? I'm a good person, therefore that's why I'm going to be in God's kingdom. Or by anything we might try to do to pay off past mistakes that we think might keep us out or qual- disqualify us from being close to God. So we're not saved because we w- we're good enough or we're not disqualified or you're trying to work it off because we made a mistake. Not at all. The Sermon on the Mount is not about earning God's righteousness or earning our salvation or, or, or paying for our own forgiveness or, or, or earning our way you know, to get into heaven. But, but Jesus is clear all through this all over the last couple of months, right? Living a life that reflects and lines up with God's righteousness. Remember, that means everything that's right about God and everything that God says is right, a a good way to live your life, that is going to take a lot of work. We're not talking about being saved. We're talking about lining up your life with what Jesus said is good and righteous. This is how we said it a couple weeks ago. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is going to take a lot of intentional hard work. It's not going to happen just sitting on your couch waiting God for to bless you. It doesn't work that way. You have to work hard at it. And Jesus called this seeking first the kingdom of God. He called it, that's a disciple. A disciple, or, or the, the phrase, or the way we've been saying it over the last few weeks in here is this. A disciple is this. Apprenticing yourself to Jesus in order to become more like him so that you can do the things that Jesus did in the way that Jesus did them. So when Jesus shows up 2,000 years ago and, and, and starts his talks like this, repent and rethink your strategy for life based on bringing the kingdom, and, because I'm bringing the kingdom and the power and the presence of God to you, he was announcing much more than, I'll take your sins away. He was announcing much more than have faith in me and I'll die on a cross and pay for your sins. Three days later, my father will rise, raise me from the dead as proof that I am the son of God and I can keep every promise. That's called faith, all right? And while nothing can change until you have faith. As a matter of fact, everything else that might, may or may not happen in your life is a moot point if you don't have faith in Jesus to take your sins away. But Jesus didn't stop there with forgiveness of sins and after you die, you don't have to go to hell. No, he kept on going. He kept on going. He said, and the same power that will raise me from the dead, all right, is available to you in this life to change you from the inside out, change your heart and the kind of person that you are. And out of the overflow of a changed heart, your life will look different in this life, like like the rest of today, in everything you do, with everybody that you bump into in this life. It's not too hard sometimes when you bump into a loving friend. He says, I'm going to change everything. Even when you bump into an enemy that hates you and persecutes you and insults you and lies about you. And we look at this, slaps you in the face and tries to sue you and take the shirt off your back. Jesus says, I know how you used to respond. I'm going to change your heart from the inside out. And you'll respond and you'll interact with people differently because you're living interactively with me every day. You're living as if I was you, if I was living in your skin, with your life, with your family, with, with, with your wife, with your husband, with your money, with your enemies. You're going you're to respond the way I would, all right? And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus painting a picture of what a life actually could look like if you lived your life interactively with Jesus, and he's changed your heart in the same kind of heart that beats inside of his chest. The Sermon on the Mount, the church has tried this for 2,000 years to take all the words of Jesus and turn them into rules and regulations, to be a good person, to, have, to, 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 to go to heaven, to have God you know, not be mad at you. But that's not what the Sermon on the Mount's been about. No. The Sermon on the Mount is a list of behaviors and choices and perspectives that Jesus says will overflow from a person who has rethought their strategy for life and is running after becoming more and more a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus. So today we're going to kind of wrap this up. We're going to hit this last section, a section that doesn't stand in isolation from the rest of the sermon. Again, I, th- I talked about this last week. I've always looked at the Sermon on the Mount as like a collection of Jesus' greatest hits. 
It's like we don't know where to put them. We'll put them in chapter 5, you know, and, and just put them all together. But, but what, what we looked at is this, this is one talk given by Jesus in a field one day to one group of people, and Matthew wrote it down, okay? One truth building on to the next one, all right, uh, leading to, to the next one, all right? And in these last few minutes of this talk we're going to look at today, Jesus kind of lands the plane, all right? He's been talking maybe all afternoon. I don't know how long he went, but, but he ends with some really strong words that after he's finished talking, left nobody sitting in that field that day or, or gathering their things up and he- heading off to the parking lot or the camel lot or whatever they did back then, all right, wondering, I wonder what Jesus wants us to do with that. No, it was clear. It was very, very clear. They knew as a matter of fact, chapter 7 ends with these words. We looked at this way back when we started. When, Gen- when Jesus had finished saying these things, the things I'm about to, we're going to look at tonight, the crowds were what? All right, they were made, blown away at his teaching. Here's why. Because they taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. In other words, everyone in that field, and this is a lot of our stories too, right? right? We grew up in a tradition where we've been taught by, by religious teachers, you know, priests, rabbis, whatever, about this is what it looks like to be a religious person. This is what it looks like to, to try to be okay with God. And if you screw up, this is what you have to do so that God's not mad at you. They grew up just like a lot of us, all right? But when Jesus finished this talk, the people just sat there in that field amazed. They never heard anybody talk like him. And they just knew Jesus knows what he's talking about. Not just about religious stuff, about all of life. Jesus knows what he's talking about, and they knew Jesus has the authority to say what he says, as opposed to most of the religious teachers that a lot of us have had, and they had, who had a lot of talk and no credibility. Anybody been to that church? Right? Don't raise your hand. All right, so so Jesus has just spent the whole afternoon describing what a life would and could look like if you're willing to rethink your strategy for how you're going to live your life. He paints a really awesome picture. All right, a life that's no longer ruled by anger. It used to be, but no longer. Your life's not ruled by lust, by contempt, by popular opinion. What's everybody going to think about me? By, by revenge, by worry, by greed, or by religious pride. It's, pretty good. it's a pretty good picture he paints in, 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 in these three chapters. But here's a warning, okay, before we get into this last part. Because just like people back in that field 2,000 years ago sat there and were amazed by what Jesus had just said, because he was crystal clear about what it would look like. And I would say this. They agreed with him, and a lot of us would agree with Jesus. A lot of them in that field and sitting in this room today hear what Jesus says is a better way to live your life, and a lot of us would go, that's probably true. That probably is a better way to live your life, what Jesus said. But, but that, that doesn't mean that any of those people, all right, in that field or in this room today got up and did anything different or had any plans to do anything different in their life. They probably sat in that field, just like a lot of us sit in this room week after week, and we nod our heads and go, that's probably true. That's probably, I believe that that's true. But that doesn't mean anybody's going to rethink their strategy for how they're going to live their life, even if they believe him, even if they agree what Jesus said is probably a better way. And we've looked at this all through this whole, this whole sermon. It goes like this. Just because you say you agree and believe, that doesn't change anything, does it? It's just talk. And Jesus knew that. And if he just would have stopped where we left off last week, we'd be good. If, we, if he just said, okay, let's wrap things up with the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Go, pe- go in peace. That would have been a good afternoon. Right? Right? People would have broken up into little groups, had some family picnics. Somebody pulled out a guitar and a few lines from, from what Jesus said. In chapter 6, that's good. Seek ye first. And put it to music. We could, have, we could have ended the Sermon on the Mount, you know, with seek ye first the kingdom of God and s'mores. That's a good, that's a good service. That, that would be good. And that's what all some of them, and that's what all some of us are looking for, all right? More nice words from Jesus that we're probably not going to do. But they make great song lyrics, right? They make me sad or happy, but I'm not going to do anything with that. 
But Jesus didn't start, stop at the golden rule. Jesus has 14 more verses that he's going to put in there. And they're strong verses where after laying out a picture of what could be and what was available to anybody who wants to put their life in the kingdom of, of the heavens, he now calls out and reveals how many people, that's a key word, many people in that crowd and in this room right now are going to respond. And the answer is, like we always do. All right, so let's pick this up. We're in chapter 7, verse 13. There's free Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, it's going to be here on the screens as well. So this is Jesus still, still, still talking, okay? He says this. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, again, I've got to remind you of something because, again, all my life I've thought about this a little bit different. Throughout this entire talk that Jesus has been given, he's not talking about being saved or not saved. Having your sins forgiven or not forgiven, ending up in heaven or hell. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what a life could look like that has a heart that has been apprenticed to Jesus. A life that won't fall apart when, when the rains come. Remember this? The rains come and the streams rise and the winds blow and beat against your life. So when Jesus is referring to a gate or road that leads to life, he's referring to that life that's, they go, I'm good. I'm blessed. A life that stands up to whatever hits it, whatever storm of life hits it. A life that is, is the same kind of life that Jesus lived because you have the same heart inside of you. But Jesus acknowledges, you know, there's two gates. There's two roads. The way we say it around here is there's two deals on the table, right? We, we, we ripped off Jesus there, right? There's always, there's always two choices here. There's also a wide gate and a broad road that leads to destruction. Life that falls apart when the storms of life hit your life. And the storms hit your life, don't they? Over and over and over and over. And what kind of house falls apart when storms hit their life? That's what Jesus says. It's a house or a life built by a foolish person who hears what Jesus says is true and will, and will work best, but doesn't put it into practice. Even if they sit in church and say, I believe. Even if they say what Jesus says is true or teach other people what they ought to do. And as Jesus wraps up this most awesome talk, all right, he acknowledges this is how many, that's the key word, many, if not most people, will continue to live and build their lives. Most of us, when we hear what Jesus says is a better way, here's our response. Thanks, Jesus. No. I'm not going to do that. I hear what you say. I'm going to build my life a different way. But again, there, there's, there's deal number two. There's this narrow, small gate that leads to, and this road that leads to life, apprenticing yourself to Jesus, intentionally lining up your heart with Jesus, becoming more and more like the kind of person he was. Jesus says, that's like building your life on a rock, putting into practice what you heard me say. All right? So Jesus says this, this narrow road leads to life, but he also says it right out loud before he even gets into this. He says, only a few find that life because very few are willing to look for it. It's not hard to find. It's not because Jesus is saying, I'm going to hold this back from you. Most of us don't ever tap into this life that Jesus says. It's because we don't, we don't look for it. So the next point, all right, so Jesus is talking about, getting, you know, roads and gates and stuff like that. But now he's going to use, a, he's going to change that animal and farming metaphors, okay? And here's why. Because most people sitting in that field that day had a garden and sheep, all right? So they're like, well, that makes sense. And Jesus always is really good at connecting spiritual things to the real life things that we deal with every day and go, look, they're kind of the same. That's called a parable, right? So look at verse 15, all right? So he switches gears here. He says this, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And we kind of hinted at this last week. So obviously what Jesus is talking about is watch out for people who look like they're one thing on the outside, you know, on the surface, but inwardly they're, very, they're something very different. And they have an agenda. They're going to they're take something from you. 
They're going to devour you because they, you, you got fooled by, by their disguise or their deceptive appearance. And we all know people like this in our life. Don't point at them. She's right there, right? No, don't, right? We all know people in our lives that they, they look like one thing on the outside, but there's something different on the inside. It's called a hypocrite. But, but here Jesus applies it to, he says, watch out for false prophets. So, so what's a false prophet? We don't really use the word prophet much anymore. It, it simply means this. This is what Jesus means. Someone who claims to be something or teach something or claims something about themselves or claims something about God, this isn't true. They're a false prophet. A false prophet is a person who uses God's word or says or claims something in the name of Jesus in order to manipulate people into doing something not for Jesus but for them, kind of like a wolf would devour an unsuspecting, trusting sheep. That's a false prophet, all right? So Jesus is here. He's talking to the sheep. Just because someone stands up, all right, and claims to speak for God and give you a message from Jesus, the Lord led me to tell you this, all right? Be careful. Watch out. Watch out, doesn't mean they're real. To which the sheep would look back at Jesus, if I was a sheep, and go, well, how do you know? How, how will you know it's a false prophet and what's one I can trust? To which Jesus would say, just watch him. Just watch him for a while and you'll know, long enough, you'll know. And then he switches from wolves and sheep to trees and fruit. He's all over the place, all right? So, verse 16, he says, by their fruit you'll recognize them. Who's them? So, so just watch, you're going to recognize them. By their fruit you'll recognize those false prophets. So, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes, kids? No, Jim, they don't. All right, so kind of keep up, all right? Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? No. Or figs from thistles? No. All right, so here's going to connect the dots. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Everybody keeping up? This is like farming math. All right, here we go, all right? A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's farming 101 right there, okay? Now, here he connects the dots. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Who's them? False prophets. And the question, though, is this. So, so what's the definition of fruit that's good and fruit that's bad? So we can recognize them, right? I mean, how about this? If somebody has a big church, all right, or it's kind of famous, is that proof that they're good and they can be trusted? <laughs> no. We're not talking about me. I'm talking about, other, you know, but, uh, <laughs> people on TV, stuff like that. No, no just because you have a big church, that doesn't mean you should trust people like me. All right, all right. How about this? If someone's quoting the Bible, the Bible says, all right, or has a degree from some Bible school, all right, is that proof that they're bearing good fruit and we can trust them? Is that proof? I know the Bible. Can you trust them? Not necessarily. The Pharisees quoted the Bible all the time. They memorized huge chunk, huge chunk of the Bible. And one day Jesus took them aside, and you know what? You'll get on a boat and go to the other side of the ocean to quote God and tell people what they ought to do in the name of God. And you make them twice the child of hell that you are. That's kind of strong from nice Jesus, right? So apparently you can be a child of hell and quote the Bible. Right? So how can we know if a person is a false prophet or a person that's actually pointing to the gate or the road that leads to life in the kingdom of God? Hold on to that. Look at verse 21. It's still Jesus talking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, just because somebody's walking around going, I'm a Christian. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I got baptized four times, all right? That's not enough. It's not. Because apparently anybody can say that. I'm a Christian. Therefore, you have to trust. All right, I got baptized. But Jesus is my Lord, all right? But, but Jesus goes on. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who what? does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Does that sound familiar? Because we've hit it every week for the last 10 weeks, right? It's the same thing that Jesus has been saying. Hearing, believing, and talking about, you know, what, what my Father says is true and is better, that doesn't, that doesn't change anything in real life. 
unless it's put into practice. Just because you memorized it, just because you're saying it, just because you claim to believe it, it doesn't make any difference unless a person is willing to put it into practice. And Jesus goes on. And this, this next verse is the part, I, as I read it, I was just kind of stunned because I never really thought of it this way. And actually, there's part of me wanted to, I'm going to skip over that. I don't, I don't want to talk about that, all right? Because it comes back on me, all right? Listen to how Jesus describes the day when certain people will stand in front of Jesus. According to the Bible, we're all going to stand in front of Jesus one day, okay? This, he describes that day. Look at this. He says, many, that's an important word, okay? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, teach in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And that word many, as many will say to me, that's the same as many will go down this wide gate and this wide road that leads to destruction. It's the same many. But here's what, according to what Jesus, and he knows, what many people will do when they line up in front of Jesus, kind of plead their case, I'm good, all right? Many people will stand in front of him and say this, Lord, Lord, did we not teach the Bible and teach it in your name and teach people what you said is right and true and better? We did that so many times in your name. And they'll, they'll line up in front of Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did we not, did, were you watching? Did we not drive out demons in your name? We did supernatural Crazy stuff, all right? Demons were afraid of us. People were impressed by us. And we did it all, Jesus, in your name, Lord, all right? And Lord, Lord, did we not perform miracles? We did things that there's no other explanation for. That was a miracle, right? And we did it all in your name. And nobody else can do it. So obviously we're tapped into you. So it's obvious that we're good people. We're good Christians. We're apprentices of Jesus, whatever you want to call us. Because in your name, we taught the word of God. We fought against evil things. And we did things in the, that, that nobody else could explain. All while using the name of Jesus. And, and this next line is what I think could be the scariest line in the entire Sermon on the Mount. Look at this, verse 23. Then, I, then Jesus will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And here's why this is so scary, at least to me. I mean, I almost had to pull my truck off the side of the road the other day when, I was, when this kind of came into my head here, right? Apparently, it's possible to do really good things and do them in the name of Jesus, but do them totally apart from Jesus, without a relationship with Jesus. Because when Jesus says, I never knew you, the activities that he just listed there are not proof that a person is living in the interactive, my life in the kingdom of heaven relationship with Jesus. I mean, you might... But it's not proof according to Jesus. Because think about this. Not once in this entire Sermon on the Mount does Jesus ever talk about a life that's lined up with the heart of Christ will be able to prophesy. He doesn't mention that. A life that's apprenticed to Jesus will be able to, 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 do, to, to chase demons away. Because you have the same heart as Jesus. And you'll be able to, if you really are lined up with Jesus, you'll cure cancer or t- you know, heal blind people. Jesus doesn't mention any of that. And you think about that, okay? If this is rules and regulations to get into heaven, if Jesus was keeping score... It seems like prophesying and preaching, all right, casting out demons and performing miracles in the name of Jesus, that ought to get you some points. I mean, if Jesus got a scorecard, I'm good, right, right? Because I, I do this a lot. But Jesus doesn't mention any of those things anywhere in the Sermon on the Mount when he paints a picture of this is the person who gets it. This is a person who understands what it means to live your life interactively with Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, he, just, he, he describes the fruit of a good tree, a life that's putting into practice the thing that Jesus said and did. Remember, he uses phrases like this. This is what we've covered in the last two months in here. 
You begin to see your life as blessed regardless of your circumstances, whether they change or not. You're good with God. You live your life in a way that brings praise and credit to God, whether you get any or not. Your life is not run by or controlled by anger and contempt and revenge. It used to be, but something changed in your heart. You value people and you see them the way God sees them and you love them, all right, which, which makes it impossible to lust after them or manipulate them or use them for your own plans and then toss them aside and divorce them when you're just done with them. No, you, maybe that used to be you, but it's not you anymore. You're a person of integrity. And you keep your word and your agreements. Your yes actually means yes. You pay back good for evil, and you want God's love to be experienced by your enemies. You refuse to write off and dismiss people that are different than you. You generously give a percentage of your treasure away. And by, let's just be clear on that. Your money, you give your money away to those who need it. You pray, you fast as outward disciplines and practices in response to God's love, and not so that people think you're a super Christian. You refuse to judge too quickly, and you always are aware of and admitting and working on your own sins and your own problems and your own plank in your eye. You don't shove your opinions and beliefs down other people's throats, even if you're right and they're wrong. You ask good questions. You seek understanding in others. You ask permission before you knock down the door of another person's life. You treat other people the way you want to be treated, and you personally put into practice what you have heard Jesus say is right and true and better. And apparently, it's possible to preach and exercise demons and perform miracles in the name of Jesus, but it has nothing to do with Jesus. Because it's possible to do all those big, fancy religious things and still not be the kind of person, an apprentice of Jesus. And that's all he's calling us to do. In other words, bottom line, the main description of a person's life that understands and lives their life in the kingdom of the heavens isn't described by big, flashy, look, I'm so smart about God stuff, I can give fancy religious speeches and prayers. No. It's not some big mystical Obi-Wan Kenobi power over devils and demons and the stuff you see in movies. It's not even, wow, he must really be spiritual. He has almost like magic powers to do unexplainable things that draw big crowds and sell a lot of books. No. I mean, some people in a relationship with Jesus might be able to do big fancy things. Some, not very many. But there are some things that every person living in the kingdom will begin doing. And it's almost all found in the daily, unseen everyday way that you live your life away from the stage away from the lights in the current body you have not in the body you wish you had not the body that you hope one day you'll have this body this living my life with this body in the, in, in the job that I go to every day with the amount of money at my disposal. I wish I had more, but I don't. So this is the money I have in the relationships that you are currently in. Not if you dump her and get somebody better. No, no, no. In the dealings with the hard-to-love people of your lives as you do or do not put into practice what Jesus says is true. That's what Jesus means when he says, come and follow me, follow my feet, right? Not just follow my thoughts and just follow my good ideas. Follow me and do the things I'm telling you to do today. Not if your life changes down the road today. Because that's where you live. That's where your house is located. This is where your life will either stand up or fall down when the storm hits your life. And the Sermon on the Mount starts and ends with real people living real everyday lives, interactively with Jesus, responding to whatever comes their way in a similar way that Jesus would if he was living in their skin. With their choices. With their opportunities. But here's the other part of this, all right? This is kind of cool. Jesus also says, even in the first few days as people start to follow him, he says, if you'll follow me and you'll trust me with just a little bit of your life, Jesus says, I'm going to trust you with even more. I will. Just, just, just uh, today, trust me with a little bit, and I'll tell you, there's more I'm going to trust you with. Can you imagine what Jesus was talking to? He actually says this. He says, listen, I, 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 hard, I can't get my brain around this. He says this, if you'll follow me, eventually the things you've seen me do, you'll do greater things. That blows my mind. 
Can you imagine, what was Jesus thinking about? What was he referring to when he looks at someone like you or, or me or something and goes, you know, the stuff you read in the Bible, you trust me and eventually I'm gonna allow you to do things greater than what you've seen me do. That just blows my mind. But, but let me tell you, he makes it really clear. It doesn't start with someday, it starts with today. Baby steps, right? In your current life, not in a life you hope you'll live someday, this one. Now, I wanna do something, all right? I was going to say I'm almost done, but you know that's not true. Look at your watch. All right, so I'm going to do something. Honestly, when I, when, when, when I talk about this, you're going to go, well, that was a big sharp turn off to, in another direction, but it's really not. I'm going to share something with you, with you all, and honestly, I, I hope you're going to respond in, in, in a great way, okay? Like I've seen this church do in the past. This is the best church I've ever been a part of. I love, I love how, how you guys see it. God wants to do that? Okay, we'll go do that. Like, I've just never seen anything like it before. But here's what, okay, however you respond to what I'm about to say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pay attention to the first thing that comes up in you. I'm going to lay something out here. I want you to pay, pay, but whatever you feel, I want you to pay attention to that. It might be excitement. It might be joy. It might be generosity. It might be cynicism. It might be dread. It might be anger. It might be resistance. But whatever that immediate response that comes up in you first, when you hear what I'm going to talk about, right, I want you to pay attention to that. And then I want you to ask yourself, why am I responding like that? Why, why, why is that my initial response, okay? So, so here's what I'm going to do. We're, I'm going to start with a little history lesson, all right? I'm going to go all the way back to 2007, okay? And I tried this earlier, and this worked better, okay? I had the people that used to go to church here in 2007, and about 14 of us raised our hands, all right? So if, if you did not go to church here in 2007, raise your hand and look around the room. That's most of us. Okay, so this is new information for some of you, okay? So in 2007, all right, we were across the street in the Jack store over there, okay? I was preaching in the shoe department, if you've been over there, okay? So, but I stood on stage across the street and I announced that we had just gotten an email from some friends of ours in Afghanistan and they asked Flatirons, will you help us dig a well for some IDPs? That's internally displaced people, meaning they're Afghans and then they got invaded and they ran off to another country and they came home and their houses all been blown up internally displaced people, all right? So they're out there, the, the government dumped them out in the de desert with no food or water, and so the question was, all right, can you help us dig a well? I'm like, well, I don't know, I'll, I'll try, all right? So I, so I went up on stage and I announced that we're gonna take up a special offering. We've never done this before in the history of, of Flatlands, even before I got here, all right? And this church responded by lining up in the aisles all the way out the doors, and they, you guys, you put a mountain of checks and cash on the, on the front of the stage and jewelry, like wedding rings. Wasn't gonna work out. Whatever, okay, but anyway, so, <laughs> so, so I use that joke every time, but shut up, right? It's new for most of you. Anyway, so, all right, so, and that's how we launched missions here at Flatirons, okay? We've never done anything like that before, organized, right? Somebody had a friend that had something going in that country. We go, anybody want to go? And 10 people would go off there, but we're getting organized now. And the first place that, that Flatirons decided, let's do missions, was Afghanistan, because it's easy, Right? <laughs> No, the reason that we chose Afghanistan is because, one, they ask us, and two, nobody else was willing to say yes. That's why, that's why we ended up in Afghanistan. Number one question asked of Jesus, as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was some version of this question. Hey, Jesus, why do you go to the places like that and hang out with those kind of people? I want to be the kind of man, I want to be the kind of church that's always asked the same kind of question. Why do you go there? Because nobody else wants them. Right? Now, skip ahead eight years. As of now, Flatirons has sent several hundred people to Afghanistan for short-term trips of one to three weeks. We have funded the construction of homes for dozens of widows and orphans because the book of James tells us to do that. We provided health care to the poorest of the poor in the world through our clinics and home health visits and educating 
you know, this is, you boil water, you, you do things like this. We provided a clean water system for an entire town named Bark Ab, translated in Dari, broken or fragile water. They have clean water there now. And currently, we fund a school for working street children in Kabul for both boys and girls, something that was previously unheard of for the poor, or especially for girls, for the last 20 years in Afghanistan, right? A working, a working street child is this. You're between the ages of four and like 10 years old, and you work the streets half the day, then you come to our school, and the kids that were in school now go and work the streets, selling stuff, candy, all that kind of stuff, picking up scraps, I started to say crap, but that's church, you can't say that, but anyway, but, and then selling it to the dump and stuff like that, and they take the money home, and a lot of times their parents take it and use it for all kinds of stuff, but we, we also built another school in Barkov, but it's closed, it, they closed it down, which I'll explain in a minute, and hopefully we're going to fix that. All right, so I got an ask coming in here in just a minute, all right? So, so two years ago, right up here, I shared with you all some things about Sozo International, our partner over in Afghanistan. And I threw out a few challenges, and you all responded, and it was just awesome because you always do this, all right? The first challenge that I threw out was, will you consider sponsoring Sozo in addition to the offerings you put in those blue buckets each week, which will allow us to expand our schools and include more and more grades? The kids are getting about 10 years old, and then they graduated out, Back to the streets, okay? So we keep on adding more and more and more grades, all right? And, and many of you took on that challenge for, for a year. And our, our schools exploded with more and more kids, more and more teachers. Well, we, we, we gave health care to those kids and immunizations for them and their whole families. But the biggest challenge I threw out was that God may be telling some of you to go. Not just on a short-term trip, but go live in Kabul, Afghanistan, and be part of what Sozo is doing. Not just go for a week or two, but three to five years. You say, well, that's impossible. Do you remember this story? Se- several years ago, we had three college girls up at CU, part of our young adult ministry called Merge, right? And, and they went on a short-term trip to, to, to Uganda. And they got over, and they saw a huge need, and they phoned their parents and said, we found some kids that are being hurt, and we're staying. That's a bad phone call, huh, Mom and Dad? Or it could be awesome, too. And with that, Musana was born and is now a vital, important missions partner with Flatirons. So, it's been done before. We're about to do it again. Today, I'm happy to announce that we're about to send our first two long-term team members from Flatirons to live in Kabul, Afghanistan, to work in our schools and our clinics, along with Waqil, our national director, and the rest of the Afghan staff of Sozo International.